And let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful today that our only hope is you. Lord, if we were dependent upon ourselves, Father, to be our hope, Lord, we would be of all men most miserable. But Father, you have provided in your Son a sure and steady anchor of the soul. You have provided all that we need in Christ Jesus. He is our wonderful Savior. He is our King. And Father, He is the one who gave Himself to save us from our sin. And so, Father, we come before you today and our, truly our confession is all we have is Christ. So, Lord, we ask that as we have just sung of that truth, that you would remind us through your word today that all we have is Christ. May your word come and work in our hearts through your spirit. May he take your word and apply it to our hearts and lives. Father, may we set aside all concerns and cares. Father, may we be setting aside our own preconceived ideas, Father, and may we listen to your word. May it speak through your spirit, changing us to be more like your beloved son. Father, work in our midst as only you can. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, we're taking a little break from our study in the book of 2 Peter, and we're going to be looking today at the unashamed hope that we have in Christ, that we can have unashamed hope in Him. The book of Romans is Paul's, in many ways, his magnum opus, and he begins this letter by speaking of how he is unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, as he provides the thesis, if you will, for the entire book, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The people to whom Paul is writing, the believers in Rome, needed this type of encouragement. They had lived in a world where their belief in the gospel, from an external perspective, from the world's perspective, had brought them shame. They had faced immense persecution from the leader of Rome, from Caesar himself. They, in fact, many of them had been driven from their homes, driven away from that which they lived in. They were viewed as troublemakers and rebel rousers by society in general. And particularly as many of them were Jewish converts to the gospel, many of them unfortunately had been driven from the synagogue, the very source of life for Jewish people. And so their allegiance to Christ had brought a shameful assessment upon them of the world around them. Now, things are not much different today, are they? The world around us continues to shame believers. They label us as antiquated or bigoted 
Our society continues to consider the way of Christ to be woefully naive and ignorant. And so they attack us, so they make fun of us in society. And as we look to and realize our hope is set in Christ alone, as we sung, all we have is Christ, yet the world can seek to continue to shame us for that hope we have. And we can become discouraged and begin to question ourselves, is our hope in Christ a source of shame? Maybe the world is right. And so the world's constant degradation of those who believe and follow Christ Jesus can bring about shame upon us and empty us of joy. So Paul writes in our text this morning in Romans chapter 5 to encourage believers that their hope will not bring them to shame. In fact, look with me. We're going to be focusing today on verses 6 through 11, but I want to begin in verse 1 to give you the context of what Paul is saying. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And then we have this great statement in verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul, in verse 5, tells us that our hope does not put us to shame. And that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into us through the Holy Spirit. And so despite what the world would say, despite what the, the world would seek to Uh, impugn our character and to deride us as believers in Jesus Christ, we have unashamed hope in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is calling us all here today to realize that we must hope in God's love demonstrated in Christ's 
death. Paul, in verses 6 through 11, is going to drive home the hope that we have in God's love because of the death of Jesus Christ. And so I'd like us to consider three things this morning regarding this hope that we have in God's love. And the first thing we see this morning is we are to hope in God's love for unworthy sinners. Hope in God's love for unworthy sinners. One thing that comes crystal clear through this passage is our unworthiness. We see this as something that Paul clearly describes for us. And the first thing we see highlight, Paul highlighting about the love of God is that we don't deserve it, that we are unworthy of that love. Now, this is an important point to keep in mind, particularly as we understand how we can have hope. If God's love was dependent on us, if it was, it was compelled because of something within us, then it would be incumbent upon us to continue producing that characteristic so that God would continue to love us. If God loved us because we were lovely, we would have to keep up that appearance of loveliness to continue receiving that love. We would need to maintain those certain characteristics to compel the love of God. But God does not love the lovely. He loves the unworthy. And that is exactly what Paul brings out here. Look again in verse 6. He tells us, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Paul actually uses four different terms throughout this passage to describe our unworthiness of God's love. He begins by using the term sick or weak. While we were still weak. The term that's used here regarding weakness refers to an incapacity, incapacitation or a debilitating disease. This is something I recently was very familiar with as I was laid up with COVID the last couple weeks and, and recognizing that I had nothing I could do. I could just sort of lay in the bed and ask God for mercy and healing. And so what Paul is saying from a spiritual perspective is that we are sick, not just generally sick, but we are incapacitated. We are chalked full. We have a cancer that is spread through every part of our body in our sins. As Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It's the same idea of an incurable disease, so uncurable that we cannot understand the depths of our disease. So we are sick. We see at the end of verse 6, the second term that Paul uses to describe our unworthiness, we are ungodly. We are ungodly. This describes how this sickness affects us, that we languish underneath this sickness that causes us to act in ungodly ways. It primarily refers to the ways in which we violate what God requires for us to relate to Him. Essentially, it is a desire to live apart from Him, to ungod our lives. That we want nothing to do with Him. We want to live in complete autonomy. We don't want Him to be the Lord of our lives. And so we will go in ungodliness into all sorts of despicable acts. In fact, we see this in, described as what ungodliness is throughout the Scriptures. In 2 Peter 2, verses 5-6, through 6, he describes how God did not spare the ancient world 
Even though he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, he, with seven others, he brought a flood upon the world of the what? Ungodly. Then he speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah being a place that is filled with debauchery and sinful actions. And it is described at the end of this as what is going to happen to the who? Ungodly. And so ungodliness is that desire to turn away from who God is. In Romans chapter 1, if, if you have some time this afternoon, go to verses 28 through 32. And there we see the result of ungodliness, full born in mankind involving themselves in all manner of sinful activity. We see in verse 8, Paul uses a, th- a third term. He says that God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners. He describes the description of those who Christ died for as labeling us sinners. This refers to someone who does not meet the standard. We know Romans 3.23 very well. For all have sinned and fall short of, and here's the standard, the glory of God. We all fall short. What is it to sin? It is to fall short of that standard. And what is that standard? It is not some arbitrary standard that a church sets up. It's not some arbitrary standard that we think of. It's not some rule that society gives us. It's the very character of God Himself. And every single one of us, Paul tells us in Romans 3, falls short of that standard. As Jesus says in the, sermons on the, Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, for us to be perfect, to know the Father, we have to be perfect. And what is that perfectness, perfection to look like? As our heavenly Father is perfect. So we're sick, we're ungodly, we're sinners. And then the final thing that Paul describes is found in verse 10. He says, for if while we were enemies... Paul describes our unworthiness by referring to us as enemies of God. The term here refers not just simply to an ambivalence towards God, but towards hostility towards Him. The, this is the ungodliness, the idea of wanting to ungod our lives brought to its full bore. We want nothing to do with God. We would rather Him not exist. In fact, we would rather Him be dead. This is what it means to be an enemy of God. Now, I doubt if you were to go out into the world today and you were to ask people, you know, do you want God to be dead? I very doubt, very highly doubt many people would say that. But what happened when God came in the flesh? What did the world do to the Son of God when He came here? They what? Killed Him. Because they were his enemies. And so Paul is describing for us the reality of who we are. We are unworthy of the love of God. We're sick with an incurable disease. We are ungodly, wanting nothing to do with him. We're sinners, failing to fall up, meet up to the standard that he has. And we are his enemies. We want him dead now what is so stark and vivid about 
This description is what it is that God does for those described this way. He loves us. God demonstrated His love towards this type of person. There's a wonderful hope here that should humble us. God does not love you because of who you are. God does not love you because of what you do. God loves you because He is a God of love. He is a God of grace and mercy and things that we do not deserve. He showers upon us in Christ Jesus. How this should humble us. Jesus Christ did not come to save the well. He didn't come to heal those who had no need of a physician. But Jesus Christ came to save who? Sinners. And so it is important for us as we see the love of God and the hope that we have in it, that that hope is not found in ourselves. We are unworthy of that love. But then we see the magnificence of God's love in this passage. There's a great contrast made here between our unworthiness and the amazing, magnificent love of God. The only thing that rivals the depths of man's sin is the love that God has for His people. What do we see about this love of God that is given to us? We see, first of all, it is a love that sacrifices. In verse 6, we have this sort of abrupt statement, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's a few things to note here, and the first is that God's love is directed by His sovereign plan. Again, notice what Paul says here. While we were weak, while we were ungodly, Christ came at the right time. God's act of saving his people is not some sort of second plan because or plan b because mankind messed up it has been his intention to save his people from the foundations of the world and it was at the right time when christ came the time perfectly suited that god had planned this. We see this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4-5. through five. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ came according to the sovereign, eternal plan of God to die for sinners like us. This love that God shows in Christ is a love that sacrifices. It is the highest form of love. It is the love that acts and gives of itself for the betterment of those to whom it loves. This act is sacrificial. At the right time, Christ died. And what we see, secondly, that Paul brings up in verse 7 is how God's love is not like our love. Look in verse 7. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's argument in verse 7 goes this way. He says, look, it is, it is very unheard of that someone would die for a righteous person. Now, that term righteous can sort of throw us off because we often think of that as referencing someone who has got righteousness in Christ. But that's not what Paul is referring to here. He's referring to someone who does the bare minimum. They meet the standard of a citizen of society. And so the, the example that Paul is saying is, look, it's very rare that someone is going to go and die for Joe Schmo out there who just does the bare minimum. It's a very rare thing that someone would count that type of person who's maybe not doing anything bad, but just is sort of doing the bare minimum. Very rarely would someone die for that person. And then he goes on and says, perchance or perhaps someone might even die for a good person. And the good person here is referring to is someone of the most upstanding moral quality, someone who has import, importance in the world, someone who would be considered worthy of dying. And even when you have the best of the best, the cream of the crop of humanity, it's still very rare for people to be willing to die for that type of person. You think about the Secret Service. Anyone here want to sign up to be a Secret Service agent? What's involved in being a Secret Service agent? You are putting your life on the line for the president. I guess they also do stuff with counterfeiting and other stuff like that too. But, but nonetheless, you say, I'm willing to take a bullet for the president. There are very few people who stand up and say, that's me. And that's what Paul is saying. Listen, it is unheard of for someone to die for just the regular normal person. And yes, maybe someone will die for a good person. And then he contrasts that by showing how God demonstrates his love for us when that we were not good, not even the cream of the crop. Who were we? Sinners. And what did God do to show his love for sinners? Christ died for us. God's love is not like our love. As the psalmist says in Psalm 50, 21, we have this tendency to make God like ourselves. He says, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Praise God, His love is not like ours. His love is is only His love. So God's love sacrifices. God's love is not like our love. He does not die for the cream of the crop. He dies for sinners, the ungodly, His enemies. And then we see that God demonstrates that love. We now see the main point of this passage. This is the, the main thing that Paul is driving towards. And again, it is building upon the fact that our hope is not put to shame because God has poured his love into our hearts through the Spirit. Look again in verse 8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
It's amazing to see what he speaks of here. We have a past action referred to and a present action. In fact, we could translate verse 8, but God is showing his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ, past tense, died for us. The death of Christ is the central point of all of human history. It is the very thing upon which God's plans for salvation and for this entire universe tilts. The cross is the central point of everything that Christ has been doing. And Paul here is driving to that reality and saying, Christ who died thousands of years ago still shows His love for us in that action. God is continuing to demonstrate His love towards us. The cross still speaks today. It speaks of the magnificent love of God. And it is the ultimate contrast of what God has done to save His people with His people's own character apart from that love. Notice what he says. God shows His love There's two phrases here. For us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our benevolent, merciful, gracious God acts on our behalf in the death of Jesus Christ. This is the great foundation of the hope that we have. It's not something we have accomplished It's done for us. There is no amount of good works. There is no amount of actions in in our goodness that can bring about this salvation. God must do it for us. And He has, by demonstrating eternally the love of God in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This reality will be trumpeted through all Eternity, as the book of Revelations, chapter 5, verse 6 tells us, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as what? Though it had been slain. For all eternity, the lamb that has been slain will demonstrate, will show us God's love forever. There's a sort of well-known book and movie. Uh, There was a film, uh, the 1997 film Contact, based off of the book by Carl Sagan called Contact. And it's this interesting sci-fi movie. If you're into, I'm sort of into sci-fi movies, and so I've seen this movie before. But it also is sort of a, a philosophical debate between faith and reason. And it sort of pits scientific truth against Uh, what it means to believe in God. And there's there's this interaction between the two main characters. And the one main character is an atheist, and the other is a theologian. And they're having some sort of weird relationship, which is sort of strange. Like, you don't see that happening a lot. Theologians and atheists getting together or whatever. But there's, a, there's an interaction between them and, and she's talking about how she can't believe in God and that there's no proof of God and things like that. And then, and then he asks her a question because she had a father who had died at a very young age when she was a very young age. And he asks her, he says, 
do you love your father? And she says, yes, very much. And then his response to her is, prove it. And what we have and what Paul is telling us is that we have a proof of the love of God in the death of Jesus Christ. How much has God loved you? The cross shows you that truth. If you have by the Spirit's work within you seen the love demonstrated in Christ's death, you have hope that is more sure than any other hope in this world. Because it's not a hope based upon your goodness. It's a hope in a God who loves you despite your failings. And it is a hope in a Christ who dies on your behalf demonstrating the magnificent love of God. So we find this wonderful hope, and we're called to hope in God's love for unworthy sinners. But that love then brings reconciliation. And so secondly, we see that we're to hope in God's love that provides reconciliation. Now, there's one thing that's throughout this entire passage that we see over and over again, and that is that this reconciliation required death. Again, notice what he says. In fact, it's it's all over this passage. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows His love for us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. For if, verse 10, we were, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Three times Paul focuses on the death of Christ. And again, that centrality to the gospel of what the death is is so important for us to get here. Now again, he speaks of this as a completed action. Christ is not continually dying His death, nor is it an action that needs to be added to. It is an action that is fully and completely done. In fact, when Christ died and, and, and just before He gave up the ghost on the cross, when He had received the sour wine, He said, It is what? Finished. Nothing more needs to be added. The Greek term tetelestai is used here and it refers, it could actually be, be respo- or translated paid in full. Everything that was necessary for us to be reconciled to God came about through the death of Jesus Christ. This is a debt, a death that pays our debt and accomplishes reconciliation with God. That reconciliation that required death brings justification. Notice what he says in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. It brings justification. And it's important to note here the means by which this justification is brought. It is brought through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are now, at this moment, justified through The blood of Christ. It is the blood that satisfies the wrath of God. Romans 3.25 Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation or a satisfaction by His blood to be received by faith. This shows God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. 
It is a blood that brings us nearer to Christ. Ephesians 2, 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Jesus. The blood of Christ. It is a blood that brings and creates a nation. The new song sung in heaven is worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood... You ransom people for God from every tribe and kindred and language and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. It binds us together as a people. And it is the blood of Christ that speaks not towards our condemnation, but towards our acceptance in Christ Hebrews 12, 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice to God. Christ's blood cries out and says, forgiven to those who are under it. Paul is telling us that the death of Christ brings about justification. That His blood justifies us. This term justification is a term that's used in the Roman legal setting. And there's many different nuances that this term has to come to to bring it. Including the idea of vacating personal claims against someone. And then demonstrating that that person that is justified has a morally upright or righteous character. And so what Paul is saying is the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the demonstration of God's love for us, it does not simply take away God's wrath. It provides for us the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we can now stand before God fully as righteous as Christ is. Think of that. Fully as righteous as Christ is. So that now there is no claim against us in God's wrath. We are free. We're forgiven. And so that salvation, that reconciliation that brings justification, finally provides salvation. Notice what he says In verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. This is a fact of truth for all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. This is where we find our future hope founded. We see that this salvation is a future salvation. Notice again what he says, we shall be saved It is not a question. It is not a possibility. It's not something that we can be uncertain of. It is a certainty. If Christ's love that is demonstrated in Christ through the blood that has justified us, if that is ours by faith, we will be saved. You don't need to worry about what happens beyond this life. In Christ, you will be saved. And so this Future salvation we have is a sure thing. And then we see, secondly, what is it that we are saved from? We are saved from wrath. This isn't a very popular topic 
in this day and age. And I think it's important to note here that Paul, in discussing the magnificence of the love of God, he does not shy away from also describing the wrath of God. The two truly cannot be separated. What is it that we are saved from? It is not some ethereal concept of morality. It's not some sort of cosmic idea or a scale that weighs our good and our bad. What is it that we are saved from? It is God Himself that we are saved from. Our translators provide and tell us that we are saved from the wrath of God, but the, term, the phrase of God is actually not in the original. And I think it's right for them to do so because the point that Paul is making is that we are saved from the wrath. There is only one wrath that we need to fear in this life. It is the wrath of God. There is no other justice or judgment that we need fear but standing before a holy and righteous God and being ungodly, being sinners, being chocked full of a cancer of sin, being without hope and enemies before Him. How do we evade the wrath that we deserve? Because God loved us. He demonstrated that love in Christ by saving us from His wrath. And so we find this wonderful hope that we are saved from the wrath of God. When we stand before God, if we are in Christ Jesus alone, if we are trusting in Him by faith, at that last day where the great white throne judgment happens, the books are opened. And all those who are continuing in their rejection of Christ are cast into the lake of fire. But for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb that was what? Slain. There is no judgment. There is no wrath. And so when Paul says that we will be saved from the wrath, it is a sure and settled hope that we are saved from that wrath forever. And so this salvation we see in verse 10 brings about true reconciliation. For if while we were enemies... Through the death of Christ, we are now reconciled to God. We no longer want to un-God our lives. We no longer want to depose Him from His throne. We no longer want to fight against Him. He is our King and our Lord, and His love that has been demonstrated in Christ has captured us so that now we love Him. We're reconciled to Him. We're no longer enemies. We're no longer lost in our sins. We're saved and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And so now this death of Christ that has brought about this reconciliation, we see much more at the end of verse 10. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His what? Life. 
This reconciliation that provides salvation provides a future salvation, a salvation from wrath, and a salvation through Christ's life. We have to recognize that everything, everything in our hope that does not put us to shame is bound up in the fact that the tomb is empty. Christ lives today. And so we live eternally in Him, saved through His life. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5-6, through six, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Those things would not be possible if Christ did not raise from the dead. But hallelujah! Why do we meet on Sunday? Why do we come here to remember that Christ is risen from the dead. And so our life is saved by His life. This is why Paul says that he wants to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible He may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's a wonderful hope here. Christ is the one who's doing all this work. What what do we do in this passage? We are but beneficiaries of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is not dependent on ourselves. And if you're here today and you're seeking to earn your way to God, you can't do it. Only Christ can die the death needed to reconcile you to God. And so the message of this passage is turn to Christ. Find in Him your only hope. Find justification by faith in Him so that now you have peace with God. Is He your only hope today? Or are you depending on yourself? your good deeds, your actions. Only Christ can save. And He's demonstrated His love for sinners and the death of Christ. So turn to Him today. Come to Christ. Well, then we see quickly one final thing that Paul brings out as he brings this section to a close. He now speaks of the Immediate consequences of all these truths. And that is pure joy. A life that is founded in finding satisfaction in knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ more and more. Which we see finally, thirdly, we hope in God's love with a gospel-centered life. Look at verse 11. Paul says, more than that. As if it's not been enough, all right? We've seen the glories of the love of God, and yet Paul now piles on even more. This is, if you will, a giant Sunday with all sorts of, of, uh, of whipped cream on top, and now he puts a huge cherry on top of it all. More than that, he says, we also rejoice in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The thing we see here is that this gospel-centered life is a life that is built on hope. Paul says that we rejoice in God. The term that he uses here for rejoice has the idea of exalting in or boasting in. It's more than just being happy. It is an exuberant, life-altering truth. It is the thing that defines you as a person. (coughs) Excuse me. And what Paul is saying here, he's challenging us not to just simply have a head knowledge of these truths. I mean, if you've been coming to this church for any amount of time, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, this is somewhat not new news. But it is the good news, and it should excite your very souls so that you exalt, you boast in God, in the gospel, in all things. It becomes the central point of your life. The gospel should never become boring. As we read these verses, as we hear them preached, they should rouse within us a soul-satisfying hope that defines us as a person. When people ask, what are you about or what type of person are you? The answer should come back immediately. That's a gospel person. That's someone who finds their full satisfaction in Christ. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, the only thing that he boasted in was the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through that cross through which the world has been crucified to him and he to the world. And so that hope that we have in Christ Jesus is the thing that our lives are built upon. It is the center of human history. It is also the center of who we are. This gospel-centered life, secondly, is focused on on God. Notice, more than that, we also rejoice in God. We glory and boast in Him. A.W. Tozer famously asked the question or state, made the statement that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most significant thing about you. And that's very true. Our conception of God needs to be the most significant thing about us as it is driven by what the Scriptures say. But here, Paul is not so much concerned with what we have in our heads. Rather, what we have in our hearts is the subject of God, the most thrilling thing in your life. Is it that which thrills your soul? We know the hymn, all that thrills my soul is what? Jesus. Is that true? Are you rejoicing in God? Is your life focused on Him alone? And then finally, we see that a gospel-centered life lives in reconciliation with God. It's important, I think, that he ends here by speaking of how through Christ we have now received reconciliation. Paul reminds us that we possess reconciliation. It's not something that we look forward to. Yes, there is a future aspect that Paul already described. We will be saved from the wrath of God. But now, what do we possess? 
reconciliation with God. So do you live a life reconciled to Him? Do you spend time growing in your relationship with Him? Knowing Him more? Is He truly the great pursuit of your life? You're no longer His enemy. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you live that reconciliation out every day? Several years ago, when I was assistant pastor here at BBC, I had the opportunity to work with an organization called Baseball Chapel. And I was the chaplain for the Washington Wild Things uh, minor league baseball team. And when they would have games on Sundays, I would have the opportunity to go down to the ball field beforehand, like around 4 o'clock, and I would hold a little devotional for uh, the, the, the two teams. And I had met many uh, people there, and it was a, a great opportunity, but there was one particular player on the one team, and he had this tattoo that said, Baseball is life. I remember talking to him about that, and and he was describing how for him to have reached where he was, and he had reached a a decent measure of success as a baseball player, he had given himself completely to baseball. So baseball truly was his life. And I, I thought how sad that was, because one day his body's going to give out. One day his abilities on the ball field are not going to be there. And the very thing that he's living for will be gone. I wonder if that's true about you today. Maybe you don't have a tattoo that baseball is your life. Maybe you don't have a tattoo at all that tells you what your life is. But your life is lived for lesser things. You boast in your career. You boast in in your finances. You boast in your friends. You exalt in these things. And they can never bring you the full, soul-satisfying hope that boasting in God can. Paul tells us that our hope in Christ does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And that love is demonstrated in the death of Christ that brings about full reconciliation with God. I think the greatest example of this in Scripture is Stephen. Stephen is an example of what it means to see this hope that did not put him to shame. Even in the midst of a world that shamed him. Stephen preached a message sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ through the entire Old Testament message. And the crowds heard this and they ground their teeth against him. And and he looked up into heaven and he saw his hope. In fact, Acts 7, 54 through 56. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
He had and experienced this unashamed hope in Christ. It's interesting. They take him and they grab him from that place. They take him outside the city. They throw him in a pit and they begin to stone him. And Stephen prays as Christ does for their forgiveness. And then Luke describes Stephen's death. And this is a death that is violent. Huge boulders being thrown upon him. Limbs breaking. Body being being mutilated. And you know what Luke says happens to Stephen as he dies? It says, and he fell asleep. How could that be the description of someone facing such a violent end? Because he had an unashamed hope. And that hope is found in the love of God demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Are you here today having that hope? Is Christ Jesus your one and only hope? God has poured His love into our hearts through the Spirit and He's demonstrated that love in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. May our hope today be fully founded in Christ alone and then may Christ alone be our great theme in everything in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for your word and the truth we find in it. And we ask, Father, that you would take it and apply it to hearts and lives here today. Change us, mold us, shape us, Father, to be more like Christ. Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know Christ as their Savior, may today be the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. May they turn to Christ in faith. And Father, may we leave this place boasting, rejoicing, exalting in Christ our Savior and all that we have in Him. Father, work by Your Spirit among Your people, Father. We pray all this in Christ's name. Pleading.